everyone. Please have uh, Acts 12 open there, and we'll be looking at Acts 11 as well. Uh, it was wonderful last week across the Easter weekend to have all, what was it, five services full to the very back. Uh, it was a really wonderful thing. Uh, this week, we know that many, uh, some of us have headed away on holidays and are enjoying a nice break, so we'll pray for them in a moment. But um, just uh, one quick announcement, and that's about our Welcome Arvo Tea, which is coming up in just a few weeks. We hold these a few times a year for anyone who's joined our church in the last few weeks or months, uh, and they've said, yeah, I want to I be part of this place. And we have you around to fill our senior minister's house just around the corner that way to enjoy some good food and also to hear about what our church is on about and get to meet some of the staff and other members of our church. So if you have joined in those recent times and you've never been to one of these, then please take down that information. Uh, it's actually written in your handout as well. And you can write on your feedback slip as well. It would be really helpful if you said, I would like to come to the Welcome RVT and put that in later on in our last song. But now, let's pray. And we'll look at the scriptures. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks again for your word. We praise you uh, for the incredible things we see in the book of Acts. And so we pray now that you'd open our eyes to see your wonders and rejoice in all your ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about life, or when you think about the world that we live in, uh, do you see the Lord's hand at work? Some Christians, when they think about life, they see everything, absolutely everything, as the Lord's hand at work. They see a new job or a sunny day or a good conversation or a refreshing breeze as the hand of the Lord blessing them. And they try to work out sometimes all the ways that the Lord's hand is at work in all the fine details of their life. Other Christians might do the total opposite. They go about life and they never see the Lord's hand at work. Uh, things just happen to them and they think, well, it's just chance and fortune. Or it's the laws of physics just running their course. Or maybe they say, you know, bad things happen in this world because of the curse of sin, yes, but there's not really, many other, there's not really any other reason. Uh, and they say, you know, God's in control, but he's concerned with the big things, not all the fine details that go on each day. How do you see the Lord's hand at work? How do you think about it day by day? Now, I ask this not because that's what this passage is trying to tell us all about or answer all our questions about. Uh, no, we won't get to the bottom of that idea today. But our passage does say, if you look at chapter 11, verse 21, just turn back from what we read, it says, 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a large number of people became Christians. So maybe we'll see along the way how the Lord's hand is at work. Well, today, it's actually our last week in the book of Acts for the next little while. We'll be starting a new sermon series in the book of Romans. You might like to read ahead and get familiar with those early chapters of Romans. But let's remember what we've seen in the book of Acts of late. We need to refresh our memories. It's been two weeks because we've had Easter in the middle and stuff just leaks out of your brain when you have a public holiday. That's what I find, at least. What did we see two weeks ago in Acts? So two weeks ago, we saw the gospel of Jesus is not just for the Jewish people, but that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, can repent of their sins and find life in Jesus. Through miraculous circumstances, God sent Peter to a man's house, to Cornelius the centurion. He preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they were saved. 
And do you remember last week we saw, how did, how did they all respond? Look at chapter 11, verse 18. Flick back and look there. It says, Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. And it was this momentous turn. It was this great realization as they realized that God's plan for humanity was bigger, greater than they could ever imagine. Those first Jewish Christians, they had no idea that God's plans would extend to the Gentiles and it would extend to us sitting here today. Today, thankful for the salvation that's in Jesus. But they should have realized that. Because what did Jesus say back in the beginning of Acts? He said, the risen Jesus said, Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. So we've seen Luke, Luke who wrote the book of Acts. Luke, he's been setting the stage. He's been showing us how the gospel has been going from Jerusalem to Judea. Even the Samaritans are included. And now we've seen just the beginning of the gospel going to the nations. So we've seen Saul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's become a Christian and he started to preach. We've seen the persecution in Jerusalem that scattered Christians all over the known world. And we've seen the first conversion of a Gentile household with Cornelius. And so now Luke shows us the next big step that happened. The formation of a Gentile church. So far the big church has been in Jerusalem. There's been little clusters of Christians spread all around the place. But so many of them were Jewish. But here in Acts 11... We see this big work of God as he establishes a big and a growing, mostly Gentile church. So come with me into the story. Luke shows us the gospel growing in Antioch and then in Jerusalem. But he begins with Antioch, with the revival in Antioch. And it starts in verse 19 of chapter 11. Look there. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, so that's back in chapter 8, uh, they, they, these Christians, made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. Now, do you remember Stephen? Stephen was one of the magnificent seven, uh, one of the seven men chosen for admin in the Jerusalem church, but he became the first Christian martyr. He died for his faith. He confronted the Jews and they stoned him to death. And so the persecution ramped up from then on. And almost all the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, maybe thousands of them, fled to all the different parts of the known world. And wherever they went, this is the thing, wherever they went, they would not stop talking about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. But only to their fellow Jews. Jesus was the promised king of Israel. They didn't yet fully understand that the gospel was for Gentiles until verse 19. Look at these beautiful words, or verse 20, I should say. But there were some of them, some Jews, Cypriot and Cyrenian Jews, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, to the Greek speakers, the Gentiles, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who turned, a large number believed and turned to the Lord. See, whatever the work of the Lord's hand is, it's definitely people coming to know Jesus. 
You see small clusters of these people. They were becoming Christians everywhere. Yes, they were mostly Jews. And then one Jewish Gentile, sorry, one Gentile household came to faith. We've seen that. But then God chooses to do this mighty work in the city of Antioch. A large number, dozens, maybe hundreds of people, Gentiles, turn to Jesus, believe in him. And for the first time, a mainly Gentile church is born. So far, the big church in Jerusalem made up of Jewish Christians, that's all there's really been. Now, a big rival church of Gentiles has sprung up in Antioch. But are they a rival church? No, not at all. Because verse 22, the Jerusalem church finds out about this and they send Barnabas up to check it out. Do you remember Barnabas? His name means son of encouragement. And so they send him up to find out what's going on and encourage them. Uh, He's the one who sold the field and gave all the money to the church, to the apostles. Barnabas is a man full of the Holy Spirit and zeal. He's trusted by the apostles and so they send him up to check out Antioch. And what does he find? He finds more Beautiful things. Look at verse 23. It says, When he arrived, Barnabas, and saw, what did he see? The grace of God. God, in his kindness, had saved all of these people. And so he was glad and rejoiced. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true in the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. So on behalf of the Jerusalem church, He welcomes them and accepts them. And he urges them to keep going for the Lord. This is no rival church. They are one and the same people of God. Jesus has torn down any dividing wall, any hostility. And he's united his people, Jew and Gentile, as one. And so these two churches love and accept one another. I think it's just another helpful lesson that we shouldn't let anything come between us and our fellow believers. No matter what differences we might have and what things the world says should divide us, we should not be divided on those things. Isn't that right? If someone genuinely believes in the Lord Jesus and follows him, if they are a brother or sister in Christ, don't let anything divide you that Jesus doesn't. The things didn't stop there in Antioch. Verse 24 says that large numbers continued. He uses that same phrase, large numbers continued to be added to the Lord to become Christians. This church just keeps growing and thriving. And so Barnabas, he decides he has to do something about that. Uh, He goes and he finds Saul, the Apostle Paul, uh, near Tarsus, and he brings him back. And this is the first time that we see Paul and Barnabas working side by side for the cause of the gospel. They're co-workers in mission, and here we see it for the first time. So together they stay for a whole year and teach this church. They make sure this church is grounded and planted in the truth of the gospel. And we just have to realize what a big step this is in the book of Acts and in the cause of the gospel in history. We might read this and say, cool, you know, more people becoming Christians. That's great. And it is, but it's more than that. Because we see, what we see happen is from here on, Antioch, The church in Antioch becomes the new center of Christianity. This is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And a big church has sprung up there. It becomes the new center for all Christianity. Did you notice the end of verse 26 before? We see it there. It says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
That's how big this is. That's how many people came to faith in Antioch. That's where Christians got their name. That's where our name comes from, from Antioch. And today we finished the book of Acts, but if we read on, and we will when we get back to it sometime later on, uh, if we read chapter 13 and on, the Apostle Paul, he goes on his three missionary journeys. That's what we see in the book of Acts. He travels all around the Mediterranean with Barnabas and with others, proclaiming Jesus, establishing churches wherever he goes. And where does he always start out from when he goes? And where does he return back to and share updates and reports? Antioch. Have a look at these maps. It shows us Paul's missionary journeys. They all start over on the right with Antioch. From here on, Antioch is Paul's home base. It's his sending church. Just as we sent the, the newbies to the Philippines, and just as we send the Blouses to, the, to Argentina, and just as we send the McDowells to Paraguay, and every few years they come back and share how God has been at work, well, that's what Antioch was for Paul, his sending church. And that's why Luke is showing us these things. This huge moment in the spread of the gospel has occurred. The Lord's hand is at work. He saved this church full of Gentiles. Praise God for that. But more than that, he then makes them the place where the gospel goes out further to the ends of the earth. Just think about it. You and I sit here today because of the church in Antioch. Because they sent Paul and Barnabas all around the Mediterranean, to proclaim Jesus. If you know Jesus, you and I sit here today because of what started back then in Antioch, because of God's hand at work there. Praise God for that. So the Jerusalem church, the mother church, uh, with the apostles, they love and accept the Antioch church. But the chapter finishes then with a little footnote, footnote of a story, uh, but it's actually just another really beautiful little event. See, the Jerusalem church, they accept the Antioch Christians, but then the Antioch church, they love the Jewish Christians. If you just look at verses 27 to 30, just look over those verses. What happens? The Holy Spirit warns of a great famine that's going to happen. And so what does the church in Antioch do? Well, they bundle up food and money and they send it to all the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. The Jewish Christians loved and accepted the Gentile Christians. The gospel of salvation came from the Jews and reached them. And so now the Gentile Christians love and serve the Jewish Christians in their time of need. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And that's just another example, isn't it, for us, that we are to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, again, despite our differences. Is that not just the logic of the gospel? If you are family in Christ, if you are one with your brothers and sisters here and others in other places, then you put aside your differences and you love and you help them when they are in need. You don't let anything divide you. But it's this, this mention of the Jerusalem church, that makes Luke shift back to talking about the Jerusalem church. So we, uh, when we look at chapter 13, later on, we will see uh, them return to Antioch. Uh, but here, Luke has one more thing to say about the church in Jerusalem. So on your outline, this is the second part of our passage that we had read out before, persecution in Jerusalem. And here the focus is, yes, very much the persecuted church there, but it's also very much on the persecutor, King Herod. 
Now, the Herod family of kings is a confusing thing. Who here has read the New Testament and then kind of wondered, what is this weird Herod guy and how many of them are there? There are many Herods in the New Testament. None of them are nice. Uh, But this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, is what he was called, uh, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill baby Jesus. So this is Herod, the grandson of that Herod, and it's all very confusing. But this Herod, Agrippa, well, he walks in all the same ways as his forefathers. Because look at chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. So the scene has changed from Antioch to Jerusalem, but also from joy to sadness. Then we're back in Jerusalem and the persecution takes just another step forward. Here we have, sadly, the second Christian martyr, the first of the apostles to be killed. Herod has killed the apostle James. This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, Jesus called them. He was one of Jesus' earliest disciples, one of the twelve, one of the closest three friends of Jesus, along with Peter and John. And so this is just a massive blow to the church. I don't think we can fully grasp how big it is. We don't know exactly why or how, but James, he's cruelly executed for his faith and for preaching Jesus. We just need to remember, as we see that, that although it might seem like a far-off thing that may never happen, we don't know if one day some of us will face death for the Lord Jesus. We need to pray that we would have the same Resolve, staying true to the Lord like James and like men like Stephen did. So James is dead, but Peter is next. Look at verse 3. It says, When he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews to have James killed, that's just an awful way to think, isn't it? He proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out. To the people after Passover. So the anti-Christian Jews, they were happy with James being killed. And so Herod decides, well, if they like that, then I'm going to go for the head honcho. I'm going to go for Peter. And I hope we kind of get an eerie sense of deja vu at this point. Because this is now the third time that Peter has been imprisoned. The difference is this time, he's imprisoned all alone. But also, when does this happen? It happens during the Passover week, the very same week in the calendar that Peter's Lord was arrested and killed. And Herod's intentions are very clear. He's not just giving Peter a bad Airbnb for the weekend. He's not trying to just scare him and then send him off. No, his intentions are that this will be the last place that Peter stays. Again, are you praying for the resolve, that same resolve as Peter And the strength to be faithful if one day someone wants to put you in prison for following Jesus. But verse 5 gives a hint of hope. It says, So Peter was in prison, but prayer was being earnestly made to God for him by the church. And of course they would pray. That's what God's people, when they uh, that's what God's people do in dire situations, because he can do anything. And in this situation, he does do something. At the last hour, the night before this mock trial and then execution, 
God sends his angel to miraculously free Peter. Uh, he's, you know, in the past, we've already seen it, God has shamed the Jewish leaders as they imprisoned Peter and he got escaped. Now this time it's Herod's turn to be ashamed, to be humiliated. And we don't have time to go into all of this in detail, but we're just going to notice a few things. So look at verse 7 and on. Uh, the first thing I love about this story is just how blunt and abrupt this angel is. Uh, he kind of turns up in the cell, whacks Peter on the side, and he's like, Peter, get up, put your clothes on, let's get out of here. It's like an impatient parent rushing to get the family out the door. I've never been like that, ever. <laughs> and Peter, he, he doesn't think it's real at first. He just goes along with it, and then suddenly realizes he's out in the street, and he's like, whoa, the Lord has rescued me from Herod. That's awesome. And so off he goes, and he finds where his fellow Christians are, at the house of Mary, the, the mother of John Mark. And this is another first introduction. We're introduced to John Mark. He's the one who wrote Mark's gospel in our, in our New Testament. He's the cousin of Barnabas, and we're going to see him later on traveling around with Paul and Barnabas, preaching the gospel. So Peter turns up, he knocks on the door, and the girl who answers the door runs back and says, it's Peter. And they're like, no, it's not Rhoda. Peter's in prison. You're silly. You've lost your mind. Uh, it must be his messenger, they say, or, or his angel, which is kind of a weird thing that they say, which we don't really know what they meant by that. But eventually, they, they let him in, they rejoice, they're amazed, he explains everything, and then off he goes into the night, and we don't see Peter for a few more chapters. He escapes so that he's not caught and killed again. So what do we learn from this story? We learn God, by his power, can and does protect Peter. His hand is at work. So God can and does protect his people as he chooses and in his wisdom. We have to be, we have to be really clear. This is not a promise that all Christians will be safe all the time from all things that are bad. That's fairly obvious from the story. Peter was imprisoned, first of all, before he was rescued. And James, James was not rescued, was he? Not this time. I'm sure the church was praying for James just as earnestly as they were praying for Peter. But God, in his wisdom and in his, in his goodness, know, knew that it was time for James to go and it was time for Peter to be rescued. We don't know exactly why. We can't know the mind of God on all these things. Why would we expect to be able to? We need to humble ourselves. We need to recognize he is God and we are not the Lord's hand is at work in the world, but he doesn't always tell us what his hand is doing. Instead, we trust him. We trust his power and his wisdom and his goodness. We trust that he will give us all the protection he wants to give us for our eternal good and for his glory. And the other thing we trust is this. That no human power, that, that no force of evil can stand in his way. All he has to do is send one of his angels and the job is done. And that leads us to our last little bit of the passage today. Where God sends another angel to do another job. Because Luke finishes his story about Peter and the persecution in Jerusalem. But then he finishes with another little bit about Herod. And Herod's just end. So what happens to King Herod? 
Some of his subjects, they hold like a political rally for him. He's been angry with them and they're trying to appease him. He's a bit of a tyrant and they're trying to give him what he wants so that he'll be kind to them again. And you can actually read about this story in Josephus, the Jewish historian. This is outside the Bible and he gives us a bit more detail about this story actually. So verse 21 says, Herod comes out in all his royal attire and he sits on his throne and he gives an address to the people. And because they're trying to win him over and gain his favour and flatter him, verse 22, the assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. See, they're sucking up to him, aren't they? And it's at this point that God has had enough of King Herod. Herod's killed one of his apostles. He's imprisoned another with the intention of killing him. And so now verse 23 At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give give the glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. When when we read that out, some people have a little giggle to themselves and some people are really horrified by that story. It tells you what your personality is like as to which way you go on that. But notice the order of things here. It's not he died and the worms ate his body like happens with everyone. No, he was infected by worms in his gut and that is what killed him. Again, you can read about what Josephus says about this. You can Google it. Uh, And it said, Josephus said that Herod was struck with intense pain and then five days later he died. Josephus doesn't say this, but Luke does. It was the Lord's hand. It was the Lord's hand at work. It was his angel sent to strike him. That's a pretty confronting thing to see, isn't it? But Luke, he's actually unashamed to say this was a deliberate and just act of God. Herod had done great evil to deserve it. He knew about the God of Israel, and yet he chose to ignore him. He knew the Jewish law, and maybe even at times claimed to believe it and to live it, He knew full well that he was accepting blasphemous words for himself and taking the glory that belongs to God alone. So not only will God protect his people, we've seen, he will also judge the evil and bring them to justice. And again, just like with the protection of Peter, we can't say exactly how and when God will judge an evil king or a leader. We can't know the mind of God on all these things and what his hand is doing, but we can know and trust that he does work for righteousness and justice in this world and in history. We ultimately know that he will bring about full justice at the return of his son. So Herod meets his just end, and in the very next verse, Luke tells us what he really wants to talk about, which is the result. And again, we see some beautiful words. Look at verse 24. It says, then God's message, the word of God, the gospel, flourished and multiplied. Gospel growth. Whether it's in Antioch or whether it's in Jerusalem or anywhere, Luke wants to tell us that the Lord's hand was at work. The message flourished and multiplied. And that's what Luke wants to show us more than anything else. Have you kind of noticed that as we've read week by week? That refrain keeps coming up. The word of God flourished. The church enjoyed peace and it grew and multiplied. That's all Luke cares about. He wants to show us gospel growth. He wants to show us how God's message flourished and grew. He wants to show us how it did that. 
that through the persecution of Stephen and the scattering of these Christians and their boldness to proclaim Jesus, that through that, God brought about a big, growing, faithful Gentile church in Antioch. And that through this church, he would then provide for another church. And then he would bring about the spread of the gospel to even more people through this church. That's what Luke wants to show us. And he wants to show us that even through the persecution of God's people and even the just removal of an evil king, he wants to show us the Lord's hand is at work to grow and multiply his word to more and more people. And he wants to show us the people who were impacted by his gospel and then who impacted others with that same gospel. People like Barnabas, people like Saul, John Mark and his mother Mary and James and Peter. Why? He wants to show us all this to show us how God's message multiplied and flourished, how the gospel grew, how his hand was at work. And Luke, I think he would want us to see our world and our lives in the same way. And God, he caused these words to be written for us, the book of Acts, to be written for us as scripture for that reason, so that we might see the Lord's hand at work and catch the same vision and zeal and passion to see the name of Jesus proclaimed to all the nations, to see the gospel grow and the message flourish and multiply so that everyone who believes can be saved. There's nothing more important to Luke. It's what God is doing in the world today. And so there should be nothing more important to us. Let's pray that that would be the case. God, our Father, we thank you that we see your hand at work in the book of Acts and that we can also see your hand at work in the world today as your gospel goes out into the world and person by person, people come to know you and they are saved through the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that your hand would continue to be at work in our world to bring all those who will turn to you to faith in Jesus. And we pray that you would be at work in us that you would help us to be supporting the gospel as it goes out into the world, that you would be helping us to use our time and energy and resources to see the gospel spread. And we also pray that you'd help us to use that time, energy and resource to see the gospel spread to friends and family and neighbours so that many would come to know Jesus and rejoice in him. We pray in his name. Amen.